Hi, I'm Dan Primack, host of Axios Recap. Today, we're back with another weekend episode of our Hard Truth series, looking at structural racism. This month's episode is about housing segregation. Here's my Axios colleague, Nyla Boudou. Welcome to a special Saturday edition of Axios Today. I'm Nyla Boudou. Each month, our Hard Truth series looks at how structural racism operates in American life. In the past, we've covered voter suppression and public education. Today, we're focused on housing. Maybe you've heard the terms contract buying or redlining, or maybe you've wondered why home prices in neighborhoods in some parts of the city remain depressed, while others continue to skyrocket in value, and why it's so easy for some people to buy a home or get a home loan, but not for others. When it comes to real estate, sometimes racism is obvious. Other times, it's subtle. A lot of the policies that you find don't have race written in them. That's Natalie Moore. She's a journalist, and her family has also lived this story. You don't have to say no Blacks allowed. You can just keep this cycle of segregation going. Her family has worked hard through multiple generations to achieve the American dream. Her grandparents came to Chicago almost a century ago in the Great Migration. Her parents got Natalie and her siblings into good schools. But despite all of that, all the good decisions, and all of the family's success, when Natalie decided to buy her first home and chose a predominantly Black neighborhood, she still faced many of the factors that have led to a huge wealth divide in this country. The hard truth is that the average Black family has about a tenth of the wealth of the average white family. That's according to the Federal Reserve. But that's not for want of trying. How that came to be through three generations of the Moore family is today's episode. Natalie's a reporter at WBEZ in Chicago, where we used to work together. But she and I actually first met in graduate school at Northwestern University. And when I started working on this podcast, it reminded me of a book that she wrote recently about all of this. It's called The South Side, A Portrait of Chicago and American Segregation. And it includes not just the data and policy, but her family story, reminiscent of the stories of so many other Black Americans over the past century. So let's start the story with Natalie's grandparents. Between the 1920s and 1940s, all of her grandparents ended up in Chicago. I like to say that I'm the granddaughter of the Great Migration. That's when around 6 million Black Americans fled the South and went west to California, east to New York, and north to Chicago, where Natalie still lives today. My mother's parents moved here after World War II from Georgia. And on my father's side, my grandfather, and at 16, decided he was going to come to Chicago. He found work as a Pullman porter on railway cars. And Natalie's paternal grandmother worked as a federal government secretary. Her other set of grandparents both worked too, and all of them were able to become homeowners. But it wasn't easy. One of the main obstacles for people of color was at the time, most neighborhoods enforced what were called racially restrictive covenants. These contractual agreements essentially said houses in an area could not be sold to specific groups based on race or religion. This pushed Black families in Chicago into what was called the Black Belt. The Black Belt was also the product of redlining. That's the practice of banks denying loans in areas deemed to be high risk. Those areas were quickly overcrowded, and eventually, Black families started looking elsewhere. I asked Natalie in what ways was her family story typical for Black families on Chicago's South Side, and what made her grandparents different? 
when my grandparents moved here, they moved to a neighborhood called West Woodlawn. And I think about how they were able to move there, which was not technically part of the Black Belt. There's a famous story about what happens when a Black family moves into a white neighborhood. Lorraine Hansberry wrote the groundbreaking play that also became a movie, A Raisin in the Sun. And that famous story is actually part of what helped Natalie's grandparents to become homeowners, because in real life, Hansberry's father bought in the then-predominantly white neighborhood of West Woodlawn. It ended up becoming a huge legal battle that challenged racially restrictive covenants. Her parents bought a house. The white people in the neighborhood were upset. And the case ended up going to the Supreme Court. That case, Hansberry versus Lee, was the precursor to the 1948 case, which struck down racially restrictive covenants. But that Hansberry versus Lee case did open up about 500 homes in the West Woodlawn area. And it was over a technicality. It wasn't because the court said equal justice should be applied. There was another widespread scheme in Chicago that denied the dream of homeownership to Black Americans who were able to save enough to buy a home. Something called contract buying. It was different than the mortgages we know because Black families would put down a deposit and make monthly payments at very high interest rates towards homeownership but those payments didn't let them accrue equity in the home. Black families thought that they were buying a home, but they could get kicked out for one mispayment or for anything that's precarious, and they had no means, no recourse. A recent study published by Duke showed more than three-quarters of homes sold to Black Chicagoans in the 1950s and 60s were on these contracts. Those homes were marked up on average 84%. Those homeowners also paid on average an additional $587 more a month than if they'd had a conventional mortgage. That's one reason why, while other Americans were benefiting from the post-World War II housing boom, these Black Americans didn't. Between three and four billion dollars, billion dollars was lost in wealth. And my grandparents did not have contract buying. And I don't know if it was luck why They didn't get caught in that. Coming up in 15 seconds, how Natalie's parents tried to escape these factors, and Natalie finds how they take modern form for her. Welcome back to our story, which now brings us to Natalie's parents. Instead of a big wedding, they got married at City Hall and used the money for a down payment for a home. And they settled on Chatham, a predominantly Black neighborhood, also on Chicago's South Side. When they were looking at where to buy at the time in the mid-1970s, Chatham was one of the it places. A Black working and middle-class neighborhood, postal workers and judges, multi-unit apartment buildings, and also beautiful corner lot Georgians. Black clubs were ubiquitous. Little neighborhood associations that have phone trees, that maybe do parties, that help you look out for neighbors. There's a certain amount of efficacy, meaning we're going to pick up trash, we're going to fill in the blanks where we might have gaps in city services. Natalie describes her childhood to me as idyllic, but her parents did as much as they could to minimize the effects of racial disparities that come from segregation. Natalie was bused, for example, to an integrated school. Later, while Natalie was at Howard University, her parents decided to sell her childhood home in Chatham. They did stay on the South Side, but they moved to an integrated neighborhood. A few years after her parents moved, 
there was a big study from Brookings Institute that came out. And basically, it showed that the fewer Black people in a neighborhood, the more homes were worth. This is regardless of class. Wealthy Black neighborhoods were still valued at less than wealthy white neighborhoods. Integrated neighborhoods did a little better, as long as Black residents were the minority. That meant Natalie's parents moved to an integrated neighborhood, ended up being quite a sound financial choice. And so they have a nest egg. They have been able to build equity by moving into a different type of neighborhood. And now we're at the third generation, Natalie's own story of home ownership. In 2008, she was a successful reporter ready to buy her own home. She wanted to buy in a historically Black neighborhood that had been through redlining and was still being overlooked by developers. Bronzeville was what we would call an up-and-coming neighborhood. There still were a lot of low-income people living in the neighborhood. She saw buying in Bronzeville as a way to use her success to invest in a Southside neighborhood. She also saw condos being built and prices going up and thought it could be a good investment for her. Natalie bought in 2008, right before the crash reached Bronzeville. Housing prices in the neighborhood had been going up there just like everywhere else. Much of that was fueled by subprime lending. And here's what you need to know about subprime lending. Mortgages were offered at higher interest rates, and sometimes those rates were adjustable. Banks have now admitted and paid out millions of dollars in lawsuit settlements, which acknowledge they especially targeted Black and Latino owners for subprime lending. And government investigations have found thousands of examples of Black and Latino Americans being denied loans that white Americans who had similar credit got. Civil rights lawyers have dubbed it reverse redlining. Natalie didn't have a subprime loan, nor was she subject to an adjustable rate mortgage, but many in her neighborhood did. I paid $172,000 for a three-bedroom, two-bathroom, and when I needed to move six years later, I was told the value was like $47,000. Generally, when prices drop that dramatically, developers swoop in. Natalie had seen Bronzeville as an obvious investment, but the system still didn't. Appraisers value Black neighborhoods differently. Banks don't lend the same. They give worse products. By 2014, Natalie was ready to offload the condo at a big loss. She had a buyer, but there was a snag. If a new buyer didn't make the payments, Natalie would be on the hook. Just to be clear, they wanted the person trying to get rid of the house to be responsible for the loan someone else was taking. My agent was like, I've never seen anything like this before. When Natalie described it to me, it sounded like the old obstacles holding back Black homeowners were just taking new forms. With all these other things, including reverse redlining and subprime lending, it's perhaps no surprise that nationally, formerly redlined neighborhoods like Bronzeville still have half the value of homes in the quote-unquote best neighborhoods. That's according to 2018 research from Zillow, drawn from its trove of home price data. I thought home ownership was what I was supposed to be doing. This is how you build wealth. And that's the gag because Black neighborhoods don't have the, the same value. There's so many myths that were sold in this country. But if we're talking about home ownership, it is tough. And the neighborhoods that are more valued are the white neighborhoods. I bought into this myth of an American dream of home ownership and, and building wealth. And it did none of that. I felt like I committed class suicide. Like, I'm not doing as well as my parents. 
Between January 2007 and December 2014, homes in Black and Hispanic communities across the country were two and two and a half times as likely to experience foreclosure than homes in white communities. I asked Natalie about the private sector's role in all of this and how she thinks these banking practices have perpetuated this cycle of segregation. Even if it's not what we formally knew as redlining or racially restrictive covenants, thing about segregation is it's about proximity to power and to resources. These are neighborhoods that are undervalued by the appraisers, by the banks, by the industry, and also by the private market because they aren't coming in and doing economic development. It can affect the schools because they would be likely segregated. And what does that mean for resources? It can affect employment because are there jobs in those communities? It can affect what types of hospitals or healthcare resources are, are in those communities. The bottom line is when it comes to segregation, housing is both a means and an end. Segregated housing leads to segregated everything else. Natalie, who currently rents, spent years thinking she'd never be a homeowner again. But that could change because there's a possibility she could inherit a house on Chicago's south side. It needs a ton of work, but the cost of work would be less than buying a house. So I could get things I've always dreamed of, like a patio and a double oven in a kitchen. So it is not in a neighborhood that would be considered one where there's wealth building. It is a Black neighborhood on the South Side, but there could be something bright on the horizon for me and my family. Axios Today is brought to you by Axios and Pushkin Industries. Special thanks to Axios Executive Editor Sarah Kehilani Gu, Hard Truths Editor Michelle Saucedo, and Managing Editor of Business Asia Moore. Thanks also to Axios co-founders Jim Vandehei and Mike Allen. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer. This episode was produced by Naomi Shaven. Alex Sugiara is our sound engineer. You can always send us feedback by emailing podcasts at axios.com and find me on Twitter at Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening.